You made that up. You made that last bit up. No, it's totally true. You know, if you can reach that level of celebration, that's probably like, that's probably it. You know, you get the gold star and, mm-hmm. and the laurels and you get to go home as paramedic of the year, you know. <laughs> I'm going to do my job. No matter who they are, no matter what they did, I'm going to do my job. But it doesn't necessarily mean that if I know you just pulled that trigger, I'm going to do my job on you first. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This is where I come to have extended face-to-face sit-downs with medics who are willing to reflect on their experiences. As an EMS educator, I've been having conversations like these with graduates for years, and one day it occurred to me that other medics might benefit from and enjoy the insights of their colleagues, so I decided to hit record. There's so much value in my visit with the medic in this episode that I couldn't bear deleting anything, so I broke it into two parts. This episode can stand alone, but if you haven't listened to part one, I really encourage you to listen to it. It's called Episode 9, Part 1, I Wasn't Prepared. He's a SWAT medic, and I'm still getting messages about him. Half the messages were to tell me to tell him thank you for openly sharing his experience, and the other half wanted to know when would part two be coming out. So without further delay, episode nine, part two. So I'm curious if you had a role model, a medic that you tried to emulate. My suspicion is that you wouldn't because you're the kind of guy that has an idea about who you want to be. Um, you already probably had a visual because you were talking about being on a tactical team. Like you had this maybe avatar that you were shooting for. (laughs) (laughs) So even if you didn't have like the classic role model, are there medics that you tried to emulate? Oh yeah. You know, I was enormously fortunate to get a really good preceptor when I was doing my paramedic internship. He was really patient and just friendly enough yet professional enough much like yourself, to be really conducive to me learning in that environment and being able to make mistakes, you know. I don't know if I could say that I emulated him per se, but I garnered a lot about how I wanted to be, both as a medic and as a preceptor, from him. And I still use stuff that he did with me all the time with students. Right, so you precept students. How many have you precepted? Oof. Uh... I don't know, six or seven, maybe eight by now. Anybody yeah. that, what do I want to ask there? I'm, what I'm curious, I'm just going to say what I'm curious about. Is there anybody that was, what, I'm just going to ask. <laughs> Is there anybody that wasn't good at it and you couldn't get them to the place where you thought they needed to be? Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Yeah. I had a pretty difficult one recently and that student was particularly difficult because they were already working in EMS mm-hmm. uh, at a basic level. And then also going to paramedic school. From the very first moment they walked into the station, they came in with the attitude that they were already one of us. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about this this morning when another guest on your podcast had also talked about a similar dynamic. One of the important parts of the educational process in becoming a paramedic is being uncomfortable and coming to terms with that and learning how to adapt and overcome it and everything. And it's, you know, again, one of those things that may serve you very well in the long run if you're able to do that. But if you come in, already at least pretending that you are completely comfortable and then demonstrate that in fact you have some 
pretty significant shortcomings. I think that's a really difficult thing to overcome as a preceptor relating to a student, you know, without further eroding them in some way. Because, of course, our objective is not to break them down. It's to, you know, help them get through something, a barrier to... Don't you think that they're un- they are, in fact, uncomfortable and it's a mask that they're showing you? Absolutely, yeah. The trick is for them to get to get real about their deficiencies so everybody can yeah. let's build something. Man, one of the stories that I tell probably the most often about my preceptor when I was doing my internship was uh, by the time I was about halfway through my internship, I was not feeling comfortable by any means, but certainly starting to feel like, okay, you know, like maybe I'm not going to fuck this up too royally. And then I had a really bad day on the truck one day. And I mean, we had a a trauma call with a guitar that had gotten smashed over this kid's head. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't check C-spot. I didn't do anything. It all went right out the window. Mm -hmm. And I just became more and more discombobulated. And it continued to sort of grow on itself throughout the night. And I was really, of course, beating myself up pretty hard about it my preceptor found me outside the station and you know said are you doing okay and i said man i don't know what's going on like i'm coming apart at the seams you know and it's not because of undue stress or anything it's just a really bad day and i hope it's not the same next time and he said well you know we all go through this one way or another we we go through school and we're terrified and uncomfortable and and then we start to get to a place in school where we think you know maybe we're going to make it through this and we're going to, you know, be okay. And then we have a really bad day in our internship and we go not back to square one, but certainly two steps back and have to reanalyze and again, recollate all the things that we've learned and, you know, and so on and so forth. And then we graduate and we go off and we become terrified paramedics in the first couple of years on our truck. And we're like, oh God, I'm going to you know, royally screw this at any moment. And then, you know, your third and fourth year comes along and, and you're starting to feel better. And then your fifth and sixth year comes along and you're starting to feel like, man, you've, you've actually got this kind of wired, you know. And then you kill somebody. And, you know, then you have to go again, not back to square one, but back to that place of humility where you have to differentiate between confidence and cocksurety, where you have to know the difference between having faith in your own abilities and just sort of blind luck, I guess. Because there's always some element of blind luck to everything we do. You think uh, so? Yeah, I think there absolutely is. Give me know. an example. I can think of at least three semi or wholly critical calls off the top of my head where either because, and I say this thinking that I'm a pretty good medic, mm-hmm. you know, like my medicine's pretty good. We're all capable of missing things all the time. And I can think of at least three calls where if I hadn't had exactly the right partner with me, I may have completely screwed that up, which is immensely useful to me as a clinician because it reminds me I don't have this wired. Right. But also is just immensely lucky to the patient because they had two people there. I think that's why we travel in teams. Well, it's certainly a, one reason why I'm a huge proponent of two ALS medics on a truck. Yeah. You know? So I want to talk about this uh, shift you had as a student where you had this humbling day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because students kind of recount that day over and over. So I've noticed it's a pattern. There was a, a psychologist or social scientist who measured how someone predicts basically their confidence level as compared to their actual competence. 
and how that changes over time. An early novice wrongly estimates that they're overly confident about their competence. So they have what's called unconscious incompetence. You don't know what you don't know. And that's many paramedic students until this day happens. <laughs> it's almost like a rite of passage to me where they get humbled and they suddenly realize, okay, <laughs> I mispredicted my own competence. And they go into conscious incompetence. Mm-hmm. They suddenly become aware, oh, I don't know everything yet. And it's incredibly humbling and very, very useful um, because they suddenly realize there's a road ahead of them. And then what happens is you're kind of describing this journey of over, over years, you start to enter conscious competence. You get in this kind of comfort zone. And then you're saying you can you know, have a shift or a call that sets you back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you learn more like, oh, there's more I didn't know. Um, just to finish out the story of what this Dunning-Kruger effect, uh, what happens is at, at the very end, you have extreme experts who they're incredibly confident that they know a lot. And in fact, they do. But what happens is they don't remember not knowing. And it's, so it's unconscious competence. They, <laughs> <laughs> so they're great at their field. They're experts. They can yeah. perform the task. They're terrible at teaching others because they don't remember the steps of how they got there. Mm-hmm. I did want to highlight this, this shift that happens eventually where the pretty early novice gets humbled and it's a, pl- a place where I see people jump ship because they're like, this is unfucking comfortable Right. This sucks. Yeah. I right. thought I was good for many months and it turns out I'm not good. That's their self-talk. And we're talking about that day happening at the most elementary level of your career, you know, where you haven't even actually gotten certified yet because, you know, we, we all, I think maybe I'm unfairly generalizing to speak of the masses this way of us in paramedic school. I think a lot of us enter that internship with this idea of like, oh, I hope I get the cardio version. You know, and we're all just so pumped for every procedure. And when you have that day and you realize that you didn't even get a blood pressure, and it's like, oh shit, you know? Like, I mean, they are, they are the most valuable days. And you hope that you have those valuable days before they're the days when someone is directly under your care when you have them, you know? We can hope for that, but it doesn't work out that way. No, it doesn't. Part of why our profession is endlessly fascinating is the opportunities for growth. And I mean, this is the first job I ever found that I consistently felt either fascinated or fulfilled or even, you know, somewhat destroyed on a useful level. And because of that reason, you know, the example of the friend that I mentioned before, who's going to get out after only doing it for two or three years, she tells me all the time, like, why are you being such a sucker you're just gonna this destruction of your sleep patterns and everything else is gonna have so many long-term effects and you need to go and do something else and i'm like no way man like i love my job for the first time in my life and i can't imagine doing anything else unless it would be to take on a capacity like yours Mm -hmm. and teach one of the things i was thinking about this morning while i was listening to one of the episodes of your podcast the guest was talking about venting and how we don't do that to patients or on patients ever. And we don't really like it when students do it because it's like, well, you know, you're not ready to vent yet. And I've, I had read this article many months back now, but I've related it to so many of my coworkers, some of them very specifically targeted on my part. (laughs) Uh, And it's an article about how different thoughts create different pathways in the brain 
And the more you indulge those thoughts, whether they're good or bad, the greater affinity those neurons begin to have for each other. You know, my old joke, which I think I've said to you before, is that you know, how do you get a paramedic to start bitching? Uh, well, you don't have to because if they're awake, they're already bitching. <laughs> And that's true of, of so many of us in this profession, and it's how some of us vent, uh, and it's how I, at times, certainly vent. But I think there's an inherent danger in that if there's any, you know, accompanying anger or frustration or, you know, other emotions that we associate with having to vent, to vent it in that way where you're bitching about something creates greater affinity between those pathways, you know? So if you're able to find other routes to get that emotion out, you know, whether it's, I mean, humor is the best one, I think, as far as we all go. Yeah. Um, and certainly I wouldn't recommend our brand of humor to anybody outside of our profession, you know, just to be really cognizant about that. It's easy to suddenly find yourself so deep in the anger hole that you can't really climb back out, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe at that point it's time to start thinking about doing something different. Um, it reminds me of a, one of the, my favorite books. It's actually not my favorite book. It's one of my favorite concepts. And the author's name is Carol Dweck. And she wrote a book called, I think it's just Mindset. But it's about a growth mindset and that you nothing is fixed. In your brain, it's not a fixed organ. You can purposely, day after day, grow it in whatever way you want to. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what you're getting at. That, um, yeah. And I, I made a little note to myself here to talk about this experiment that some people do, you may have heard of it, where they, for 30 days, they try not to complain. Mm. They may feel I hadn't heard the displeasure, yeah. but they wear a bracelet for 30 days. Basically, their goal is no externalization of complaints. The purpose of the bracelet is if they do complain, the only consequence is you move it to the other arm. And it's just to promote awareness that you're complaining. Um, the end outcome, the goal is to reshape your brain. And so you almost, the end goal is that you're not even thinking of the complaints anymore. Right. Yeah. And I've heard of similar concepts before. Yeah. What scares me sometimes about our profession, whether it's, you know, any kind of emergency response, even if you do that, make that decision for yourself, you're still in the boat of having to navigate conversations with all of your coworkers who communicate and or bond by doing that. Because we're sharing the misery, we are closer together and, and to figure out how to how to paddle that river without, you know, getting sucked into that sinkhole, I think is really tricky sometimes. Yeah. yeah. How do you do that? I don't know. I tell them about that article to start with. <laughs> it's a really good point, though, about the bonding through misery. Mm -hmm. And this goes on in every field, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think a lot of people who have worked in restaurants would agree that you take that sense of pride and like, oh, this is God awful. Let's all like you know, be pirates who sail this sea of blood and, you know. <laughs> it reminds me of that saying, I think, I guess it's military base, uh, welcome to the suck. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you take pride in adapting and overcoming, or if not, then at least in openly recognizing how much it sucks. So maybe the idea is not to complain about it, but rather that you said the word celebrate it. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, you know, if you can reach that level of celebration, that's probably like... <laughs> That's probably it. You know, you get the gold star and, and the laurels and you get to go home as paramedic of the year, you know. But uh, I think most of us would have a hard time performing that celebration regularly, you know. So I think we have to find some way of recognizing it and acknowledging it without needlessly indulging it. Yeah, that's a 
delicate balance, I guess. Mm-hmm. Can you comment on the book that you were telling me before we started recording called Resilience? Yeah, um, it's a fantastic book. Eric Greitens is the author. As I was telling you, he you know, used to do charity work with NGOs. And then when 9-11 happened, he became a Navy SEAL, which was obviously a pretty big paradigm shift. This is a book that he put together after he had you know, gotten out of the service. And it, it consists of a series of letters that he wrote to a fellow SEAL who was uh, having some difficulties, you know, going back and reintegrating into civilian life and just functioning on a daily basis. And the letters are Greitens' advice to him and, and how to rebuild his life and become a more, well, it's not even become a more, but how to refamiliarize yourself with your own resilience because mm-hmm. I think resilience is, and, and I think what Greitens points out is that resilience is one of the greatest qualities we can have in these professions, you know, the ability mm-hmm. to suffer adversity without becoming debilitated by it. Hypothetical, you have a daughter, she wants to become a medic, and it's the day she tells you, what is your response to her? Uh, my response would be, sure, absolutely. Maybe you should consider being a PJ first. Or, you know, if you're going to be a medic, maybe you should consider doing that for a while and then going on to be a PA or a doc, because I think that's a really good route to go. But that would be the advice that I would give her, and I'd be all for it. I know what I wanted to ask you. It's funny I haven't already asked, because this is one of my more burning questions. Oh, good. Now I'm excited. Ask away. And I know you've, I know you've been asked before. I hope the question's not offensive. You really have to work hard. I'm giving this, I'm giving this so much preface. This better be like, <laughs> so this is a hypothetical scenario. You go in with your SWAT team to an active shooter event. There are injured. So people that you can hear moaning, gasping, gurgling, respiratory distress, people that need rapid interventions. Let's say four or five of them. Oh no, that makes it too easy. Cause then you just triage. So there's one, there's one injured person. Okay. You may already know where I'm going with this. Probably. There's one injured person who's got some injury that's time sensitive. So um, hemorrhage or airway threatening. Mm -hmm. The suspect becomes injured. You can see both of them in your field of vision. I don't know if this happens this way, but everybody, after they think they've neutralized the threat, everyone, does everybody relax then? What happens then? No, nobody really relaxes. Yeah, I know it's the wrong word. Yeah, it's... uh it actually becomes a, a very confusing time because everybody's trying to figure out their roles at that point. Cops and medics both have a hard time standing around without going to work. So everyone's always looking for work. And at that point in time, cops are trying to secure all the things that need to be secured so that other people can come in and do their thing. Uh, and medics are obviously trying to medic. Um, is you, I haven't asked the question yet. Right. So the essential question is... When it gets to the time for patient care, whenever that might be, these people are 50 feet apart. They're in the same large room. You can see both of them. Hmm. Who do you go to? I can tell you that right now the way I would answer that question is not the way my philosophy professor would want me to answer that question, you know, um, because I'm going to go to the injured civilian first. And there's a good chance that later... If, if I'm unable, for example, to render the aid necessary to save the suspect's life because I made that choice, uh, you know, that could have 
enormous ramifications, both to my career, my you know, maybe my soul, uh, all of those things. But I'm still going to take that step towards that other person first. And I'm only talking about contexts in which I know somebody's just done something really, really abhorrent to me. In SWAT school, and, and I think in all of law enforcement training, we're taught a what's called a priority of life scale. Just to sort of put it in layperson's terms, the scale goes, you know, innocence, um, and then emergency responders, and then SWAT, and then the suspect, right? Um, and that's used in law enforcement, and it's specifically in SWAT, because they are put in that position of having to take make those decisions, you know, on... on who gets to live or die in some ways. And, you know, as medics, we then deal with the repercussions of those decisions, um, as do they, obviously. You know, on, on a fundamental humanity level, I'm going to do my job. No matter who they are, no matter what they did, I'm going to do my job. But it doesn't necessarily mean that if I know you just pulled that trigger, I'm going to do my job on you first. Um, I'm probably not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's something a lot of people could relate to. I'm curious what you think your philosophy teacher would say. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not my philosophy professor. I remember uh, actually doing a, a, an active shooter training and that exact situation kind of came up and I made the same decision that I just made in answering your question. And the guy, he was actually a paramedic, uh, attack medic who was running the scenario called me to task about it afterwards and said, you know, not only does it open it up, uh, us up to all sorts of legal liability, et cetera, et cetera. And my answer to that is I don't really give a fuck. You know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. So I have said, and this is because I, I, again, parts of my heart are traveling around in ambulances right now. <laughs> if I were in charge of the world, I wouldn't send medics in with SWAT teams that are mm-hmm. unarmed. Make a case for why it's important for a medic to be there. Okay. The short answer is the same way I talked about how, you know, cops are in the role that they are in every day. And so their mindset is so accustomed to being in that role. In that same way, medics are in the medical mindset, even outside of work. If you, I mean, I've been in this situation, you know, at least two or three times now where I wasn't at work and somebody had a medical emergency that I then went into you know, mode and dealt with. You can absolutely train police officers. You can teach them to put tourniquets on. All of my SWAT guys, for the most part, are familiar with, you know, immediate interventions for traumatic injuries. That doesn't necessarily mean they're accustomed to being that mindset all the time. And I guarantee you, even the best ones are going to have a, at least a couple of moments of hesitancy and or goat fuck mind brain meltdown when they're facing that the same way I would if somebody was coming at me with a gun and I had to decide whether to pull my own and pull the trigger, you know? Um, so all of the research and, and anecdotal evidence that we've seen from these incidents that happen in what we refer to as the tactical environment, you know, whether it's an active shooter or something like that, they're very time sensitive injuries. We know that. And all of that has come to us from, battlefield theaters um, and you know TCCC protocols and all of that stuff. We have an obligation not just to resolve the immediate situation, but to resolve the entire situation as well as we can for everyone involved. Uh, and that would be my rationale for sending medics in with SWAT mm-hmm. always. 
is that they are in that mindset and that, you know, you would be hard pressed to shake them out of that mindset. Yeah. The long answer is that, you know, we're already seeing, and we, you know, the agency that I work for does it. Uh, and I think it's a good practice to some extent. We're seeing field medics getting sent into warm zones with secure corridors established. All that takes a lot of personnel, even though it's faster than having units stage two maps go grids away until everything's cold. It still takes a long time to set that up um, mm-hmm. and is not going to be a definitive answer to immediate life threats on the scene. Uh, and so that's why I think we need those people, you know, and I think as long as we need or, th- you know, as long as we perceive that we need special weapons and tactics teams to do these jobs, then we're going to need medical personnel to do it with them. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you. Yeah. I like the argument about the mindset of the mission and how it it would be difficult to toggle between threat neutralization and emergency medical care. Mm-hmm. That's helpful to get me there to where I'm I don't feel like I need to be a voice to say, "Wait, hang on." Sure, yeah. I will say I, I came across some literature and it's in the last 3 to 6 months where we've inappropriately transferred battle wounds onto what's happening in the civilian world that they're not they're not as similar as we thought, right? So what the data is showing with active shooter events is that very often the injuries are to the head or torso of the... I probably won't leave this in here because this is pretty it's mm. pretty r- d- deep. But I want to mm. talk with, about it with you. Yeah. Uh, let's see, that the injuries are non-reversible. I guess that's a, a good mm. word. Mm. As opposed to in combat, they're seeing because they have on protective gear, they are seeing these extremity wounds and hemorrhage mm-hmm. being a source of casualties. The numbers are a little different. It's the, the, the injury pattern. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that mm-hmm. research, but I think that's probably a really valid point. I don't think that negates the possibility that with the advances we've seen in emergency medicine and our care in the field and stuff, that we could you know, have a very big impact. Well, whether it's very big or very small, we could have an impact mm-hmm. on those people right away. You're saying it could also be very small. That's the American approach to life is that the sanctity of life is so mm-hmm. high mm-hmm. that we are willing to put up a pretty big risk to hope for the benefit of just one individual. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. I need to know that there's tons and tons of benefit before I can change my voice about being willing to take on the risk. Mm-hmm. No, and I hear what I hear what you're saying. Absolutely. And I, and in many respects, I concur with it. You know, I also think that when you look at the scope of the kinds of missions that we perform, so rarely is it likely to be that context that you're talking about. The vast majority of missions that we do are either pre-planned warrant services, things like that. And probably the times when I felt most useful as a tactical medic are times when we're in pre-remote areas mm-hmm. with the team doing something, you know, but yeah. we also are probably not as often in direct danger as one might think or certainly as some of my fellow tech medics might want one to believe you know yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. it reminds me of those memes what people think we do what we actually do absolutely what does your wife think about it all she deals with it really well she doesn't usually like to hear terms like making entry Mm -hmm. into a structure you know she prefers to think of that big armored vehicle with a little paramedic inside it, you know, just waiting. Yeah. Um, and most of the time, that's how I phrase it to her. And, you know, in all fairness, too, I, I don't do a whole lot to put myself in 
direct danger. So, but yeah, she's cool with it, I guess, in that way. I think she worries more about me smoking than she does about <laughs> anything else. With good data to Absolute, support that. Yeah. Do you think about the fact that someday a medic's going to die doing that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. There was a, there was a case in Houston, I think it was last year when the TAC medic was with the guys and, and one of the officers ended up taking fire and, and, you know, the medic had to drag him behind some cover and could easily have been that medic who got hit. You know? mm-hmm. So I imagine at this point in your career, you've certainly made uh, medical errors. Any, any big whoppers? You know, yeah. Well, no, I take that back. Like, no, I haven't had any big whoppers. And I was actually thinking about this earlier today because I was like, you know, what kind, what kind of screw-ups can I tell Ginger? <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a regular patient in our district who um, had a lot of stuff going on and also some psych issues and didn't take good care of himself at all. And he would call us often four or five times a week. And almost always he didn't have anything going on. You know, he would do things like get get discharged from the hospital, have the taxi drop him off at CVS and call EMS from CVS to take him back to the hospital, you know. Sure enough, one day we got called to him and the notes said he had the same complaint that he always filed with dispatch. And I showed up and I said, you know what? I know who this guy is. I know what his deal is. We're going to leave all the bags in the truck. Just take the stretcher and put him on the stretcher and go. And it was the first time I'd ever done that. And we walked in and there was a home health care nurse there, you know, and he was sitting on the bed looking at me, alert and tracking. And the home health care nurse said, you know, something's in respiratory distress, and walked out. And I turned back to him and I said, sir, are you having trouble breathing? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, hang on a second. I'm going to go get my monitor. And I went out to the truck and got the monitor and came back in and put the pulse ox on him. And it said like 95, something like that. And I started talking to him while I was talking to him. I was kind of looking around the room, seeing what the situation looked like. And he was kind of answering monosyllabically. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see a light. I mean, some numbers kind of flashing. And I realized it was my pulse ox counting down from 95 until it reached about 76 and he arrested. Jesus. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) We moved him right to the floor. He was, you know, covered in fecal matter and stuff like that. And I had to go back out to the truck and get all our stuff and come back in. And, you know, we got him back, uh, which amazed me. You know, the good news is that, as far as I know, that patient has never called EMS again. He's actually totally turned his life around and is doing really, really well. You made that up. You made that last bit up. No, it's totally true. He's never called us again. It was your healing hands. <laughs> Not exactly a big whopper of a mistake, but now I never fail to take everything into the house with me. I don't triage from the truck nearly as much as I did as a new, new medic. Mm-hmm. You know, my partner does. Everything is panic. <laughs> Are you hoping he or she will listen to this? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm. I've, I was so thrilled that you were willing to to talk and share your perspective. First of all, you answered some questions that I had that I've been wanting. I wanted to know how it works with the tactical medicine exactly and what your approach is like. And there are a lot of different structures of it nationwide of how they're approaching it. Yeah, there's definitely, I think, still a lot of conceptual work to be done on how that works. Yeah. And how it should work. Uh, And, you know, I have my own viewpoints and I'm sure that there are members of my team and or members of other tactical EMS teams around the country who would disagree strongly with me. But I think we... Like I said, I think we owe it to all of ourselves to examine it really carefully. 
Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you being willing to come and talk with me for quite some time now. I, uh, I cannot express how much I admire you and this project. I think it's really, really worthwhile. And, cool. uh, and I'm really, really glad to be here. Thanks yeah. for saying that. Yeah. Um, I'm having a blast with it. All right. Thanks again. Yep. All right, bye. Last little bit before you go. A really cool thing has started happening, and that is the listeners have started sending me messages to pass along to the guest. And as you know, most of the guests on the show are anonymous, and I do that so they can speak freely. But unfortunately, because they're anonymous, there's not a great way for you to contact them. Uh, So I created a Facebook group called Medic Mindset Group, and I'm going to start some threads where we can write some messages to the guests that I'll pass along. I hope you're having a good time with this. I'm having a blast. Uh, I don't see stopping anytime soon. And thanks for uh, joining me in the experiment.